I don't care what you put your money in. You're making some prediction about the future. So my thought was, you know, pretty difficult to predict what's going to happen in the next 12 months. I mean, if you back up to to last year at this time, who could have imagined that Tesla would have gone to 900 and we would have had a virus that brought the economy to its knees? I mean, there's so it's so difficult to predict the future, but... The Tesla Q podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended for and should not be used as financial, investment, or trading advice. Research associated with fiscal decisions should be conducted elsewhere. The host of the show possesses no license or credentials to warrant accepting advice based on what is heard on the Tesla Q podcast. Additionally, even though the host and guests may hold positions in companies discussed on the show, they don't have insights into the next time step of the simulation. Therefore, do not make any financial decisions based on the contents of this podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 61 of the Tesla Q podcast. I'm your host TQ. Last night I recorded a really long interview with Elmer which I have not fully released yet. I released just the the ending part because it seemed to me to be more time critical and I wasn't going to have enough time to edit it before I had another interview planned. So here is another interview and if you want to contribute to the podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash podcast and become a contributor there. If you want shorty merchandise, go to evacuationboy.com and get a really nice coffee mug. So today I'm going to be talking with uh, one of my favorite listeners because he interacts with me quite a bit. His name's Larry. So welcome to the podcast, Larry. Thank you. Good afternoon. So Larry, tell tell people just real quick why you, why you wanted to be on the podcast and, and what your purpose here is today. Well, I've been on Twitter for coming up on a year and a half, and I mainly started on Twitter because of Tesla. And uh, during during this time, I've uh, interacted with some fascinating people, some fabulous, intelligent people. But I've noticed that, that, that it's pretty common for people to make um, money management errors and I've seen a number of people lose quite a bit of money because I think they maybe have a good grip on the fundamentals or technicals of a a position, even Tesla, but their money management gets them into trouble. And I just hate to see people lose money. If I can help people avoid that, I would be happy to do so. And Larry, uh, just for some background, what what is your background and, and why are you the right person to be teaching these lessons today? <laughs> well, I'm not um, saying that I, you know, know everything, but um, I got my Series 7 back in 1982, and I first started working with a bank as a broker. And just as a side, after I was hired, they had us all take an aptitude test, and the results came back on my test, and it basically said, even though he's highly intelligent, we recommend that you not hire him <laughs> because, <laughs> uh, you know, I just, I guess I didn't have the right personality for the business. And actually, I think that might be true. So I worked for the bank. We were on commission. They set goals for us every year. We exceeded the goals. They raised our goals and cut our commission every year that I was there. And <laughs> when you're on commission, I basically became neurotic. And a bunch of us ended up leaving the bank and going elsewhere. And the unfortunate thing for the bank was that uh, they lost a lot of their best customers. 
you know, if they would have just, I thought if they would have just been, you know, treated us better, it would have been a lot better for everybody. But anyway, let's fast forward to the year. Oh, before, um, anyway, after I left the bank, I ended up getting a Series 24, which is a registered principal, and a Series 4, which is an options principal. And that just means basically that I'm uh, qualified to supervise other brokers. I was just going to say, I also became a certified financial planner. But then in the year 2000, the broker-dealer that I was with got shut down because their capital reserves um, were under the minimum. So I, And when you're a broker, you have to have your license with a licensed broker-dealer. So um, I ended up calling up the NASD, the National Association of Securities Dealers, for some help. And uh, their response was, well, you're not a member. And that really ticked me off. So I ended up um, becoming a registered investment advisor in Washington. And it was really a big hassle, but it was the best thing that I could have done because at, when you're on straight commission, you're just, there's so many conflicts. Even when you're trying to do the right thing, it, it messes with your mind. You just always second guess yourself if your motivation is, is proper. So as an investment advisor, we discharge a management fee based on the assets. And so it makes it a lot easier making investment decisions. You don't have to, and it, I think it's uh, easier to have a trusting relationship with your clients because they don't uh, need to question your motives for making investment in different various things. Your uh, primarily primary goal is to see their account go up in value and meet their objectives. Mm-hmm. So just real quick, because I actually don't know off the top of my head. What's a Series 7? Okay, Series 7 is just, you know, reg- is the broker's license. You can, there's a license, I think it's 63 if you just want to trade mutual funds, but to trade stocks and bonds, you have to have a Series 7. So um, I ended up dro- dropping all those licenses and uh, because I wanted to tell my clients that my only source of income was this management fee that I disclosed on their quarterly report. It's been pretty good. In the last few years, uh, our business is focused on 401k plans. Uh, the primary uh, work we do is to help companies stay in compliance with ERISA laws. And we meet with participants and give them counseling. And it's pretty rewarding because a lot of these people are like in their 30s or 40s, and they really don't know what to do, where to go. And uh, it, it does feel like we are providing a valuable service. So in that role, do you deal with equities and bonds or some mix? What instruments do you use? Well, you know, primarily we're using, especially with the 401k plans, we're primarily using um, mutual funds, ETFs, which is just a form of a mutual fund, Mm -hmm. really. And I used to do a lot of, when I was a broker, I did a lot of uh, bonds, uh, especially municipal bonds, because back in the day you could get nine uh, percent or so tax exempt, mm-hmm. which seems like a dream now. But but we do some individual stocks. We can basically do anything. But what we've ended up doing with the four hundred one k plans is we create a portfolio. We have like seven different portfolios, and we counsel with the participants and decide, you know, which uh, level of risk is appropriate for for them. Are those kind of like target date funds in a way? Uh, 
Not exactly. It's more like, to give you an example, you might have a, a portfolio that we call conservative growth. And the idea is there that you, you know, you're investing in stocks, but you're also maybe investing in some bond funds or other things. And you're trying to get a decent return, but without all the volatility of the S&P 500. And then there's people that want aggressive growth. And, you know, you might buy a technology fund and, you know, various things that are focused on on growth. And the good thing about the 401k plan business is that the participants are contributing every month. And, and most of the time, the employer is matching contributions. So over time, it's really kind of hard to have a bad experience if you're adding money. Every mm-hmm. So sounds like what you do in that business is quite a bit different than, than what a lot of the people in Tesla Q Twitter are doing with trading individual stocks and options and, and such. So what is your personal experience with trading individual equities? Okay, so that's where you know we can focus the uh, rest of our conversation, I think, that might be valuable for people, hopefully. And I understand that other people have different strategies and everything. And I'm, I don't mean to criticize anybody. I just have learned over time what really works for me and what's been successful at making money. So let me fast forward to 2008 in the financial crisis. I don't think people can really appreciate the stress and the pressure of managing money for other people. I mean, when you have hundreds of people depending on you to make good investment decisions for them, you know, it's, it was really a stressful time. Um, I was genuinely concerned about our financial um, structure in the country. And uh, I, I had some severe anxiety, but anyway, during that time I was trading my own account and I stumbled upon um like a way of trading that worked to be highly successful. And what I'm about to say, people, I know a lot of people out there are going to say BS and they don't believe me. And that's okay because you should be skeptical and suspicious of anybody who says this. So I went on a, uh, let me explain what I was doing. So I saw, you know, the volatility was enormous. And uh, in today's market, it's kind of similar to back then in 2008 where you were in a bear market, but uh, but it would be interrupted by these incredible rallies. And uh, so I was trading the rallies, but I was so distrustful of the market that I started putting stop orders in. And I just kept moving up my stop orders and I would get stopped out. And usually a lot of my trades would be day trades. And if you think about it, what I was doing was well, if you stop and think about investing, what is investing about? It's really about predicting the future. I don't care what you put your money in. You're making some prediction about the future. So my thought was, you know, pretty difficult to predict what's going to happen in the next 12 months. I mean, if you back up to, to last year at this time, who could have imagined that Tesla would have gone to 900 and we would have had a virus that brought the economy to its knees. I mean, there's so it's so difficult to predict the future. But if you asked me to predict what was going to happen in the next 10 or 15 minutes, then, um, you know, I feel like my I improve my odds if I'm, you know, just trading in the short term. I don't do this for clients. I just want to make that clear. I'm just talking about trading my own account. So during that time, I ended up, I was very active trader. And for two and a half years, 
I average 9.5% a month. And I know that sounds absurd, but I have the records and I have witnesses that can attest to that. And um, recently, now that I've become um, semi-retired, I've been focusing my time on trading and I have been trading options on Tesla, but I really don't like trading options. I just don't like the, um, usually the, the bid-ask spread is kind of wide and I don't like all the risks associated with options. I found that if I'm just trading individual stocks and what I like to do is wait for news, not um, predict the news. So I don't like to buy things into earnings because the risk of, you know, having a go against you hard is pretty big. Let me give you an example. So a few months ago, I was driving along, listening to CNBC on Sirius Satellite, and I heard that uh, Apple and Qualcomm had settled their dispute on royalties. Well, I instantly knew that that would be very positive for Qualcomm, even though they didn't disclose the amount. I pulled over and I bought some Qualcomm stock and I put in a stop order. And later in the day, I just kept raising my stop order and I eventually got bumped out. But that's an example of a trade where you can um, make a pretty good return in a short amount of time by just reacting to the news and then getting out. It's kind of similar to the principle of Moneyball, where you're just trying to get on base. You're just trying to hit singles or walking to get on base. That's that's an excellent book that uh, is actually from my favorite author, Michael Lewis. So Yeah, he's yeah. great. And obviously, he also wrote The Big Short. And just one quick anecdote. When I went to see the movie The Martian, it was actually like eight days after I'd finished reading The Big Short. And in the previews, there was a preview that came on and before they they said what the movie was, I, I figured out that it was the big short, the movie. And I had a little bit of a, a nerdy fanboy moment and got really excited that they were making a movie about it since I had just finished reading it. But uh, that is a good analogy of the the value of an on-base percentage being higher. Um, I, I like I like sports analogies. So. so instead of like trying to predict the next Amazon, you know, trying to which is supremely difficult. And the other really difficult thing about that is is that um, all of these companies that have had fabulous returns have had wild swings in value. And personally, I just can't stomach like a 50% drawdown, you know. So um, I have learned to um, feel comfortable with the way I'm trading. But um, I want to also mention that I stumbled upon a book called Market Wizards, and now there's a series of the books. And what they are is they're interviews with some of the top traders, you know, in the world that have been successful, whether it's stocks or commodities or real estate. And, uh, of course, they don't, like, go into detail about all their secrets. But what I took from those books was the importance of money management. And let me just talk about money management. Okay, so here's my advice. I don't mind giving investment advice. Um, you have, when you invest in anything, you should have a plan to limit losses. And I think a lot of people make the mistake of feeling like they either have to be 100% in or 100% out. So if you think of your investment like in stages, um, you need to think about how much you're willing to lose on a trade. And a, a big mistake that a lot of people make is they 
um, maybe have done a lot of research and they feel very confident about what they're doing. But confidence is actually um, like a prerequisite to losing money, if you think about it. Because the people that are ultra-confident will hesitate in selling. And a lot of times the reason people take big losses is because they were super confident and they ride whatever it is. Look what happened to Tesla. You know, you think, well, this company's going to go under. Well, guess what? You're wrong. Sometimes you're just wrong. So you, when you make an investment, you just have to um, consider the likelihood that you're going to be wrong. And you have to have a contingency plan to limit your losses when you are wrong, because you will be wrong. I've told people before this uh, career is really full of heartache and disappointment, <laughs> and it is. So on my trades, I would say that, you know, maybe half of my trades are, are losers, you know, but the losses are pretty modest because I, whenever I buy something, um, I immediately put in a stop order. And if I get stopped out, you know, sometimes I will get back in, but I like the discipline of actually putting the order in so that I can't rationalize and talk myself out of selling. And I've seen, you know, like I mentioned on Twitter, I've seen people before come up with a great case for why a stock is going to go up or go down. And then it just ends up working the other way. And uh, you can end up losing. And the problem is, you know, if you blow up your account, it's just so difficult to get back, you know. So um, that's why I feel comfortable with my style of trading, trading off the news and just uh, being content with making short-term gains. And uh, and I'm back doing that again. And this year, last year, I, w- I lost money on Tesla. But fortunately, I made money on some other shorts like um, Uber and having trouble thinking i've made some money on scorpio tankers but fortunately i you know my stops got me out before i ended up getting hammered but this year i've done really well because you know when tesla was over 800 bucks i accumulated a pile of um january 2021 500 puts and i've i rolled them down as the stock went down i I swapped to the 400s and then to the 300s. And just yesterday, I sold the last of them. And I really would like to re-enter the trade at some point, but I'm not quite sure. I was kind of expecting the market to have a, a rally in here and looking for an opportunity. Maybe Tesla might get back up to 500. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But Yeah, so what what you just talked about of people being overconfident in their positioning and that leading to to big losses i definitely felt that myself with the with tesla uh, i full disclosure i ended up covering almost my entire position of short shares that i'd held since pretty much september i think i think i had that full position as of september 2019 and held it all the way through and then on february 3rd and 4th when they they had the the spike up to Ultimately, to nine sixty eight ninety nine. Those two days, I ended up covering at the at the peak. Oh, so I covered man. at the peak. So I I did a horrible thing. Another really bad thing that I did was I didn't have any call options as a hedge uh, throughout and oh, until yeah. like right before the earnings on January twenty ninth, and then 
through that weekend, I, I don't think I held a call position through the weekend, which was a big mistake. Uh, I got faked out by seeing that the the share price got pinned at 650 at that end of that week. Um, so I was like, oh well, it it got up to 650 right right after the actual earnings announcement and through the through the earnings call and then just stayed there the rest of the week and but then the next monday of course it it gapped up to over 700 at the open and then just kept going from there to rocketing to 968.99 on that tuesday so big big mistakes throughout not having any call options october 23rd when they had their surprise earnings uh for quarter three then not having call options at any point through december november december uh well through up until december 6th i don't feel like i made that big of a mistake because the unsworth trial was still looming out there but as soon as as uh that verdict came down i probably should have covered myself with some some long call positions but i didn't um so yeah so i I took a well can i interject something okay let me just um while i'm thinking of this there's a couple um, characteristics of a great trader. One of them is to be able to not trade at all, you know, to stay out of mm-hmm. the market. If, if you're, you know, if the situation isn't right, the temptation is, you know, I've got to make some money. So you over trade and end up like, you know, eating up a bunch of your capital. And the other characteristic I would say is being able to go like, from being short to being long or being long and going short. Cause usually, and I'm not, I'm not really at that level yet because usually if I'm short and I realize I'm wrong, I just, you know, I'm happy to get out and go to cash. But, you know, like with Tesla, I was holding some puts into earnings, which I violated one of my own rules. But, um, what I did do, though, is when they surprised on the upside, rather than, you know, like freak out about it, I, bun- I bought a bunch of stock, and I think it was up $20 when I bought it, but, you know, I just, I just figured um, it was going to go even further. And so even though I lost money on Tesla, I mitigated part of it by going long the common. Um, so that was, you know, like hedging against because... At the time, the, you know, that's one thing I don't like about options also is not being able to trade after, mm-hmm. after hours. So, so anyway, I would just encourage people to think about, like, if, you, if you're in a position and you're in a position because you have this expectation, you have the theory, but it's not working out, you need to get out. Okay. If things are not, if your trade isn't working, you can get out and then you can always get back in later. But a lot of times people will, you know, just hold on just way too long. Or, um, you know, the other strategy is, you know, maybe you don't sell all of it, but you scale back, you just cut your exposure. And, uh, it's, it's, a an example I would use is like driving a car. If the weather's bad, you know, there's some snow and stuff, it doesn't mean you can't drive your car. It just means you need to slow down a little Mm -hmm. bit, you know, take it easy. Be careful. If things aren't, sometimes, though, you have a feeling for something and it really starts to play out and you add to your position. And, you know, it's fantastic when you can see something coming and make money off it. It's really wonderful. But a lot of trades that investors make, even the best traders, 
will lose money on a trade. So you just need to go into every trade realizing that you could be wrong and you need to have a contingency plan to limit your losses. And I stress that with, you know, people over and over again, but most of the time people cannot do that unless they lose a lot of money. It's almost like a tuition, Mm -hmm. but you have to pay, you know, and so I, I don't worry about telling people how I trade because I know that most people won't do it. Um, There's nothing proprietary about what I'm doing. It's just like having the discipline, you know, and it can be kind of tedious after a while. I mean, you just, I think the primary thing you have to go into trading thinking about is what is your objective? And I don't mean to be critical. I don't want this to sound like I'm criticizing anybody, but a lot of times people have like a cause, you know, they, they become obsessed with the stock and it becomes a cause. And what I'm saying is, if you're in it to make money, you've got to like divorce yourself of that kind of attitude, you know, like just put that aside and it's fine to have a cause, but if your objective is to make money, you cannot afford to be obsessed with any company or any cause. And I think that was part of part of my downfall with the early early year trade with Tesla, which I ultimately took a, a big loss on. But Taking that big loss did get me to that point of of being able to divorce myself from the emotional aspect of it quite a bit. And subsequently, I've actually, just as of uh, today, the 20th of March, when I checked my gain-loss report, I am back in the green for 2020. Even though I took... The, the loss that I took in covering those shares at the peak is just on, yeah. on rough, rough numbers... Uh, about it's actually more than 50% of the current value of my self-managed money. So I've overcome that thanks in large part to the those call options that I finally did buy right around the the quarter four earnings report for Tesla. But then also trading puts subsequent to to the fall and 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 a big big thing that's helped me a lot is I've started using trailing uh trailing stop orders so kind of a a little a step beyond just a uh a set stop stop loss or stop gain whatever you want to call it Um, yeah so a lot of the things that you've just been talking about uh like just just this year in less than three months now i've i've gone through several of those stages and and i've started uh, over the last six weeks i've i've done extremely well with my trading uh part of it's luck but part of it's i think the lessons learned through the hard knock life that has been the Tesla rocket ship. Now, some people will find fault with stop losses, and I, I can see the disadvantages because sometimes I've been stopped out, and then the stock reverses mm-hmm. immediately, and it, and I feel like I've been exploited and gained. And I actually believe that I have been at times, especially in a like a smaller cap mm-hmm. stock. You know, I don't know who's who can see the orders, but. Um, it's just, so, and you won't get out at the top. That's another thing, you know, that you just mm-hmm. have to accept. Or, or get in at the bottom. Yeah, yeah. So um, if you go into it with that idea and realize that the best traders have losing trades, okay, no matter how smart you are, I mean, who could have predicted, you know, in the last, like I was saying, in the last 12 months, who could have predicted what was going to happen? So it's okay to have losing trades because you will. You cannot 
be a trader and not lose money on some trades. The key is to limit your losses and have a plan going into it. Don't it shouldn't be an afterthought. It should be like when you take a position, you need to have the discipline and stick with it. And, you know, you might miss something. You might miss a good gain on and kind of, you know, be upset about it. But the point is that you want, you know, over time, like like your experience recently, over time, you want to end up making more money than you're losing. Mm-hmm. So I just hope that people um, will really take this seriously because, you can make a lot of mistakes if your losses are small. And you most people really need um, time to learn and get a feel for the markets. You know, and it, I was, you know, I'd made a lot of trades before 2008. And I'd made some good trades and some bad trades. And honestly, my results were pretty mixed. But I stumbled upon a method that worked for me. You know, and there are people that can trade options and make money trading options. I just want to point out that when I was um, making this high rate of return, I, w- I was doing it in um, a SEP IRA account, and uh, I didn't have margin, and I didn't trade options, and I didn't short. It was only, you know, cash trades going long. And the one disadvantage I have is in IRA, you can't have a pattern day trading account, so I'd have to wait. Um, sometimes for money to settle out before I could use it again, uh, which was kind of a downer. But um, anyway, it worked. It worked out really well. I did have some losing months in that two and a half years. I think my worst months. I think I had a drawdown of about probably like ten percent of my account. So, um, and I don't even remember what the circumstances were around that. But anyway, I hope. I hope this has been some help for people out there. And, uh, you know, I don't claim like I have mastered the universe or I know I have all the secrets of trading or that other people's trading methods aren't valid. I'm just saying what works for me and what works for a lot of people is to pay attention to money management and risk management. Yeah. And one thing that I think uh, hurt my overall mindset that I've finally gotten over, which I think I think taking that big loss helped me get over it is being overly concerned about tax implications of trades. I I think, I think I've come to the point of deciding that for, if you're going to be a short-term trader at all, you just have to completely ignore tax implications. Um, it, it, it's very detrimental. Well, I have, I, I have said to people before that complain about their tax, I say, if I had a, problem basket that would be the problem that i would pick Mm -hmm. (laughs) out of the problem basket so i think we had a conversation earlier about um what was it the the wash the loss rule about the wash sale Mm -hmm. rule and i think a lot of people um you know might misunderstand what that's about basically what you end up doing is transferring the loss into a future year and you might not be able to use it this year but um if you had a loss on a trade, you still can lose it when you close out your position in the end. But um, yeah, I think you're right. You want to focus on making money. And the bad thing about you know trading like this is you might have, um, it would all be ordinary income. But the beautiful thing about uh, the environment we're in now is if you're not paying um, commissions, it really helps 
active traders mm-hmm. a lot, not to be commissioned. Yeah, I, I think that has helped me a lot because I am much more willing to just buy. I, I Sometimes I'll buy a single share just to have something on my watch list because rather than maintaining a separate watch list, it's a lot easier for me to just uh, have the list in Thinkorswim of all my current positions. And it's a lot easier yeah. for me to flip between trades or between charts, I should say, because uh, I, I like having a full screen chart. I don't I don't like trying to. Ha- well, maybe I should try. But uh, so far, I like having just a full sc- one full screen chart rather yeah. than other things. Maybe I just need a bigger monitor. <laughs> well, I th- yeah, you can get these big letterbox monitors that have a wide display. But I think it is important to do what you feel comfortable with doing. Um, have you noticed that um, recently with um, uh, like with this big downdraft in the market that there were just so many opportunities that you couldn't like, you know, watch everything at once. I was short Carvana and Wayfair and Tesla, and I was watching some other stuff. And I look over, and Lyft and Uber were cratering, and I just thought, oh, yeah, I, I should have been in there. Oh man, that really bummed yeah. Me out. I mean, I I had been short Uber uh, up through the lockout expiration. That that was a great opportunity. I, I, made a yeah. nice profit with that trade. Uh, but this is a really dumb reason, but because Uber was listed as a hard to borrow security in TD Ameritrade, uh, they had a, a percentage, uh, mar- like I had to pay margin on it. Like my Tesla short shares were classified yeah. as hard to borrow, but the, the margin rate for me was 0% for Tesla. Uh, but for Uber, it was some amount. I don't remember exactly what it was, but they sent a daily message to my account and that annoyed me. So I didn't keep, I didn't, didn't keep my watch list short shares of, of Uber. So I totally missed the fact that it got up to like 42 bucks or something subsequent to the lockout expiration. So Uber, Uber w- would have been a great, great short over these last three weeks up until yesterday when they had their, uh, I think they had a investor day impromptu and shot up like 20 or 30% or something ridiculous. Okay, I want to make one other point. Okay, in my world, there's been this ongoing debate between fundamental analysis and technical analysis, which to me is nonsensical because um, I think you should use both. Mm-hmm. And if you if you have a fundamental story and the technicals are um, working in concert with your thesis, that is the best situation like... Um, one thing that I'm kicking myself about, I had kind of um, committed and become confident in the idea that Tesla was going to go under last mm-hmm. year. And so when the stock was down below $200, I did sell some puts, but I thought I'm just going to keep these puts until the bitter end. But that was a huge mistake because the stock was extremely oversold, mm-hmm. and I knew better. I could have just covered I could have just sold my puts, I mean, and then, um, you know, waited for the chart to to bounce. And uh, that's kind of what I'm looking at here and now a little bit. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, don't fight the don't fight the chart. The ch- I used to have um, a message on my monitor that said the chart is king. In other words, no matter what else you hear or what you think. Don't ignore the chart. If the chart is breaking down, and I've learned some simple, um, I think being in music, people who um, are musicians, 
learn to recognize chart patterns. And there's a few chart patterns that I've learned to recognize that have been pretty reliable. And if you are fighting the chart, you're just making a big mistake. No matter what you think, the chart is reflecting maybe knowledge and information that is not public. And, and I always assume that I am in the dark. Like there's people out there that know more than I do. Whether they do or not, I don't know. But it's not uncommon for a stock behavior to predict, you know, the next move and 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 information coming public. Mm-hmm. And funny you should mention that because in the two plus hour conversation I had just last night with Elmer, which I haven't published yet, it'll be episode sixty two, I guess, since this is going to be sixty one. We we had the exact same discussion. All right, well. It was a little bit of a rant by me of uh, just talking about the fact that fundamentals and technicals are not at odds. They're really ultimately one and the same. And yeah. for for one example that in re- obviously hindsight's twenty twenty, but just uh, just these last few days. Uh, so Wednesday, the 18th of March, I did buy a small uh, Tesla 450 call position just as a, a, a small hedge. Uh, I bought it at like six something. And then Thursday morning, that same strike went for as low as $1, $1 even. And then uh, I think today it went for as high as about 30 bucks. So, and, and looking at the chart today and actually looking at the, the relative strength index, which I, I very rarely actually look at, uh, I need to change that. I saw that just two days ago, Tesla was very, very oversold. So this this bounce that we saw was largely a technical bounce, but also the, the pre-market this morning, I think Elon or, or someone bought some shares, but at uh, yeah. 4 a.m. and juiced the price. But yeah. I was really surprised by that because I thought after the news of the plant closing and after market, it was down up to like $40. Mm-hmm. I think at one point I thought... For sure, I'd wake up and the stock would be down. But no, it was up. So th- that's the you know that's one of the risk of holding stuff overnight mm-hmm. too is that you know just things out of the blue. So you can't really afford to like put all your eggs in one basket. I I am reminded I I do have one other trade that I um, a couple trades that I put on that were really memorable and I'll share them with you. Some people might find this mm-hmm. entertaining. So. I got up one morning and I turned on the TV and there was uh, one of the twin towers had smoke billowing out of it. And, uh, and then I, a little after that, I saw a pl- the second plane fly into the other tower and it was shocking. And at that moment I knew, you know, that it was intentional. And I actually had a stock that I went in and sold pre-market and but like I said, I haven't mastered the art of shorting. I could, probably could have shorted something, an index or something. But um, they closed the market the rest of the week. And when the market did open, I was kind of uh, trying to play a rebound. And so I bought some calls on the semiconductor index, the SMH. Mm-hmm. I bought them for a dollar. And within a few days, they were worth $4. And on my screen, I was so nervous about the whole thing. I sold like half my position and I ended up selling them. And my friend who was day trading at the time, he pulled up a chart and he says, these are this 
index is going to go to this level, blah, blah, blah. And uh, even though intellectually I knew or I expected that to happen, I just couldn't, like, sit there and let it develop. So I ended up selling all my calls, and the options that I'd bought for a dollar ended up going to $9. Anyway, it seems like I remember the bad trades a lot more than the Mm -hmm. good trades. Um, One trade that I want to mention, too, is that – do you remember when I think it was 3Com was spinning off Palm? Oh, okay, I, I don't remember that. <laughs> That's before my time. No. Okay. Well, anyway, I started 3Com, and this was like in the heyday of the internet mm-hmm. market when the volume was just unbelievable. On my screen where it showed the time and sales, it was just spinning like, <laughs> I mean, it was just spinning like a roulette wheel, and it made me really nervous and anxious to watch the you know, the volume go by. Anyway, I showed it 3Com, and I was up like $900, I remember, on the trade, and it seemed like the stock had stalled. This was right the same day that it was breaking in parts. And as soon as I, co- as soon as I pressed the button, the bottom fell out of the stock, and it just plunged. 3Com just just dropped out of sight just right it was just like so unfortunate if if i would have just waited like a nanosecond i would have i would have still been in the trade i never i don't even think i ever had to ever have to have covered um anyway (laughs) but that uh that's a sad story yeah i'm sure any any traders have some trades that will always stick in their mind and for me february 3rd and 4th of of 2020 will definitely always stick in my mind uh I'd, I'd have to have some severe memory loss to, to forget that. But Well, I think when, I think looking back, the thing you could have done maybe is on the way up, you know, you should have had like prices at which you would like cut back. Even if you didn't like cover everything, mm-hmm. you could have like kept cutting your exposure with the thought that, um, you know, in the future I'll ramp up again when it's starting to go my mm-hmm. way. Um, and I've done that before where, you know, I might have a few thousand shares of, you know, a $6 stock. And um, and then I ended up, like, getting small because my stops get triggered. But then I see that the momentum's coming back, and I just start buying it back. Yeah, um, I think my biggest downfall in that regard was, was the fear of, of the wash sale rule. Because I, I just knew that I knew oh, that yeah. eventually Tesla was going to fall back closer to the earth and uh i didn't want to miss out because of the wash sale rule which was a totally bad yeah assumption yeah i could i can understand that but yeah that's right i i would just try to ignore the tax consequences because it reminds me of when i um i met a couple they were they they were referred to me by another client and when i met with them they showed me their tax returns and their portfolio and everything and i looked at the guy and i said you know i see what your problem is here you're not paying enough income tax and he looked at me like i was crazy but the point was his his investments were situated in a way that he really wasn't earning much income and if he was invested appropriately for his situation, his income would have been a lot higher and his taxes would have been a lot higher, mm-hmm. you know? So you should not let, I've told people this a lot of time, your goal shouldn't be to minimize your taxes or reduce your taxes. Your goal should be to maximize your income after taxes. 
Mm-hmm. And so whenever you make investment decisions, you um, shouldn't let the tax tail wag the income dog, mm-hmm. I guess. But but that happens a lot when people get advice from um, like their tax preparers, uh, CPAs and stuff, they're doing taxes because they become like obsessed with the minimizing the taxes. But sometimes it's better to pay more tax. It's, you know, it's really a good um, objective. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I definitely get some wrong incentives built into things. Well, Larry, I appreciate you joining me this afternoon on extremely short notice. Uh, any last things you want to cover before we wrap up? Well, I just want to say, TQ, that I admire what you're doing, and I um, have learned a lot and admire a lot of the people that I follow on Twitter. There's some really brilliant, funny people, and I enjoy it quite a bit, and I've learned an awful lot, and I hope that the things that we discussed today will you know, help people make money and prevent people from losing a lot mm-hmm. of money. And I, you know, hope to see our um, position in Tesla work out. It'll be pretty fun, you know, when that mm-hmm. happens. There will be much celebrating and many, many, many jokes will be told on Twitter and it'll, it'll be a fun time. I'm actually kind of bummed about about the, the virus and the plant shutdown because it's just going to provide them with another month's worth of excuses, mm-hmm. you know. And I was just hoping that what would happen this quarter, next quarter, is that they would just build inventory and that they couldn't sell. And that would, like, destroy people's um, dreams of this, you know, company producing millions of cars in the future. But I guess we're going to have to wait a little longer for mm-hmm. that to happen. Yeah, I, I didn't want to win because of the virus, definitely. Um so maybe maybe he I actually hope that Tesla survive Tesla as a company survives through this virus and gets to fail or survive on its own merits. So well I think I feel pretty confident that they're going to have to raise some more money mm-hmm. now and I think in the past that's usually um, you know bringing in a new supply of shares will help um, you know bring the valuation down I think. I think the valuation's been held up by you know a lot of the shares being controlled by insiders mm-hmm. and people um, who are just like you know crazy for the company and Elon. Yeah, the the people that are are going to hold throughout and not selling a share before ten thousand or whatever craziness. Well, Larry, thanks for joining me. Okay. Thank you. And this has been episode number sixty-one of the Tesla Q podcast. Appreciate everybody listening. Thanks and bye-bye.